academia, teaching uh, at the university, was meetings. Meetings. And it wasn't meetings as such. I, I kind of like some kinds of meetings. <laughs> uh, I still have lots of meetings. But the, at the university, there was a, a never-ending political game going on. And if you, oh, in most of your work, if you, have, uh, if you have meetings, that's part of your life. There's a, there's a political game. And I found myself, I was always filtering. I was always self-censoring. Meaning I couldn't just, I didn't feel like I could just say what seemed obvious to me and I thought should seem obvious to everyone. Instead, I had to layer things. Always layering with delicate nuance. Always taking care to try to make what I was saying more palatable. Pat it so that it could be received. Now, this is because, this will echo with some of your experience, I think. When you don't share basic assumptions about what's true and how truth is known, again, what, if you don't share what basic assumptions about what's true, you have to feel out for where there are points of contact. That's part of the, the verbal game that's being played. How can, how can we work together um, where do we have contact? And that's fine. That's understandable. In fact, that's normal when dealing with people of other faiths. That's what we have to do with people of other faiths. But it ought not to be so among Christians. Right? We have a common authority in the Word of God. And God's Word written in our hearts, should allow us, it ought to allow us to reason very simply from the character of God, from the character that's revealed in his word. So it's only then, for Christians, it's only when we're, we're actually reasoning from something else, we're reasoning from some other authority or some other desire that we find that we have to search for, for that point of contact when we're speaking with another Christian. Because the fact is, we have ultimate common ground with other believers. Always common ground. We share one spirit. Our conflict comes when another desire overrules the common one. And I mean this in family relationships, sibling relationships, spousal relationships, friend relationships. When Christians have conflict, it comes when another desire is overruling the common one. Well, the Bible guides us in this problem. Please turn, 2 Corinthians. This is where we are working, working through this book in Trinity Tide. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we're beginning today in verse 12 through the end of the chapter. Conflict and misunderstanding wreaked havoc on Paul's relationships with the churches of Corinth. We set this up last week, beginning this book. The church in this large ancient city had multiple churches, multiple local gatherings, smaller house churches that comprised the church of Corinth. Some of those had regard for Paul. 
Some of them really, they, they loved Paul. They valued Paul because he had spent the first, he had spent 18 months there and had been the first to bring the gospel to Corinth. Uh, but other churches had sprung up later. Apollos had come and taught there for a while. Peter had come and taught there. So there were multiple gatherings. Some of them didn't even know Paul very well. They only knew him by reputation. And they were competitive. These gatherings, they were competitive through the spiritual gifts that had been given to them. Some of their leaders were competitive with one another. Who could offer the best patronage? That was a big part of the early church. Um, who could offer food for the poor? Who could uh, host well? And having competition made them then vulnerable to false teachers. And this is what had happened. False teachers had come, uh, and they had tried to turn them away from the gospel and from Paul personally towards some of their own teachings and toward themselves. They were exalting themselves. So in order to address these problems, this is a background, Paul had come for a visit. And it had not gone well. He had come to strengthen them. He'd come to kind of bring order to the, the wider church community, help them cooperate. But he got an unpleasant surprise. He was shamefully treated by one of the leaders, one of the patrons of these household churches. One who had come under the influence of these new teachers. And so rather than add fuel to the conflict, um, rather than bring the judgment of God on this with power and authority that he had, he left. It was a gracious move to, to leave them. He went back to Ephesus. That was where he was based. And he sent a really harsh, rebuking letter to them. And that's between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians behind this. And, and then he waited to see how they would respond. They received it well. That conflict, that conflict and, and an impending, a planned visit is what's behind this letter. And it's also what, what he's referring to in the latter half of chapter 1 that we heard read for us and that we're going to look at. So Paul here, is, he's gesturing to the past and he's explaining why he made certain decisions, why it was that he left, uh, why he didn't come back. So we read in, in uh, chapter 1, verses 15 to 16, he's, he's saying his plan. His plan had been to make two visits to Corinth. That, that was the, the thing he was going to do. He was going to sail from Ephesus, arrive at Corinth, spend some time sharing God's truth, encouraging them, bringing gifts of the Spirit, and then he would go north. This is Greece. He'd go north to Macedonia. He'd gather a collection, funds, to take back to Jerusalem. That was his planned mission. Uh, and then he would come back through Corinth. It's in the south of Greece. And he says, I would come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. That way, Corinth would have a second experience of grace, meaning two opportunities for the gifts of God to be enjoyed and shared with Paul in fellowship. But because things had gone so badly on the first visit, Paul changed plans. And as he says in chapter 2, verse 1, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. So what should have been 
another experience of grace and fellowship couldn't be. So he decided, it is not going to be good for me to go back at this time. So those are technical details, right? Tracing his movements. But it's the ground on which Paul stands. It's the way that he postures and the way that he reasons that we need to pay special attention to. We're not making trips to Corinth. It's, it's his thinking. That's what, that is what is for us. So to these same Corinthians, Paul had written in his first letter this idea. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Look at the way that I imitate Christ. And that's for you to follow. Throughout this letter, this second letter, he keeps coming back to that idea. In different ways, it, it comes, comes to us. If we stand with Christ Jesus, and we're imitating Christ Jesus, if we stand as he stood, if we hold the truth of who he is, if we walk in the way that Jesus walked, then we will have comfort in hardship. We will have the grace of God coming to us. We'll share with all the church in the peace and comfort of God. So, there's a contrast. Instead of seeking the honor and the self-focus of the, these false teachers, instead of self-exaltation that some of the Corinthian leaders had shown, Paul tries to help them understand, this is the mind of Christ. It's different than what comes naturally. The mind of Christ is to be the mind of his people. And it's not complicated. Verse 12, the apostle says, our boast, when he says, when he's using the plural, our or we, he's talking about Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Our boast, in contrast to the trying to sound impressive with rhetoric like the false teachers, our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity, with godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely toward you. It's a non-defensive claim. There's, do you hear that? There's no defensiveness in this. His use of the word boast is ironic. It, it's, uh, our, our boast is it's tongue-in-cheek. Our boast is not really a boast at all. Because we don't have anything to boast about. Our boast, he's saying, is in reflecting our, in, in, as we think about our interaction, the ground of our confidence, the reason we, we don't have any reason to worry, the reason we can feel good, the reason we can feel free, is the testimony of our conscience that we were simply straightforward. We were completely honest with you. We were unimpressive. <laughs> In contrast to those guys, we were unimpressive. That's our boast. See, ironic. Do you know this feeling? I, I bet you do. I bet you know it. It comes from those moments when we speak strictly according to what we know is true. No embellishing. No looking out to defend ourselves, 
Uh, it might be a hard conversation because we say a thing or two that, uh, that could wound our friend's pride. But when it's done, there's no need to review it in your mind. Because you knew all along, I was just saying the truth. I don't have to go back and check. Uh, what did I, how was I letting, letting other things in? There's no need to weigh whether you said too much. I just said, I, I was straight. You stuck to the truth. You avoided speculating about motives. You shared what you observed personally. So you can leave it. It's a nice feeling. But even better than that, that's available to anyone. Anyone can do that. But even better than just straightforward honesty is what comes next, what Paul links with that. Paul says they behaved not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. That's different. And this, sadly, I think is rare, even amongst us. This cause for confidence, it, it's re reserved for those occasions when we were not at all looking out for the self. And that's why it's almost impossible. In fact, on our own, it is impossible. It's those moments when self-protection wasn't even part of the conversation. You protecting yourself, protecting your own interest, trying to, trying to massage how you are received and what you say is received. That wasn't part of it. Earthly wisdom, this is the contrast he lays out. Earthly wisdom is thinking and reasoning that's aimed at winning someone over to your position. Winning someone over to recognizing that you're right. It's aimed at winning an argument. It's aimed at being in the right and proving it. But the grace of God comes from the authority of God. It comes from His perspective. When the grace of God is given, there's a, an openness to just yield to the judgment of God, not the judgment of those that are participating in the conversation. And it's free of anxiety. There's an easy confidence. Paul and Silas and Timothy say they have freedom of conscience because in their dealings with the Corinthians, they were always seeking the good of the Corinthians. They were not looking out for their own honor. They were not trying to get them to be, get the Corinthians to receive them in any particular way. They weren't concerned with how they were received or what they were thought of because all of that had been left to the judgment of God. That's what the grace of God allowed them to do, to stand in a quiet confidence. And Paul, he's commending this way of being. Verse 13 to 14, he says that the truth is simple. And this way of being, this way of talking, this way of relating doesn't require special training. He says, we're not writing anything other than what you're reading and what you're acknowledging. We're not massaging words. There's no hidden meaning. There's no subtle agenda. We got no time for that. There's, there's no time 
This is too important. And so on the day when the Lord Jesus comes to judge, we want you also to have that same quiet, untroubled confidence that Paul has. So if these Christians, if they can relate to one another in simplicity, godly sincerity, in the grace of God, then they also will be able to boast on that day when the Lord Jesus comes that they acted in good faith. That's a great boast. Again, it's a non-boast because it's totally dependent on the grace of God. On what ground do we have to boast? It was a gift. If we are able to relate straightforwardly in simplicity and sincerity, that's a gift. So he rounds out this discussion by the most important feature of it. He's connecting his behavior, their behavior, with the character of Christ. This is the, now, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The only reason they should imitate Paul is because he imitates Christ. And so, because they acted in straightforwardness and godly sincerity, they aren't vacillators. That's, that's another way of saying they don't, they don't worry about self-protection. This is worthy of imitation. So when they make plans, he says, when, when do we make plans? Do we, do we go back and forth? No. We always act according to how we think God is leading. We don't have to defend ourselves because we're always acting in that way. Paul can say in verse 18, as surely as God is faithful, which is to say with absolute certainty, our word to you has not been yes and no. We have never gone back and forth in our commitment to you. Our commitment has always been to you. Now, here's the key point about how the character of Christ helps them. Verses 19 and 20, please look. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no. But in him, it's always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it's through him that we utter all men to God for his glory. I got a bit of a confusing passage. All the promises of God are confirmed through Jesus. All the promises of God are fulfilled through Jesus. So his promise to bless the whole world. He made this promise to Abraham. Fulfilled in Jesus. His promise to renew the earth. Fulfilled in Jesus. His promise to hold and keep steadfast love towards Israel. And towards David, kept in Jesus. His promise to set his anointed on David's throne, to rule forever, kept in Jesus. And God demonstrates his love through Jesus. He shows what his love is like through Jesus. So to say that in Jesus Christ is always yes, means... Because of Jesus, because of what he's done, we can be sure of God's favor. 
That's a yes. Because of Jesus, we can be sure of affirmation, favor. So very simply, God is for us. You there? God is for you. God is for us. And so he offers all of himself through Jesus. He offers all of his love in Jesus. If anyone will turn to him, if anyone will seek him, if anyone will look to God, will yield to him so that Jesus comes by his spirit and dwells with us, makes his home with you, then God says yes. If that's your desire, God says yes, absolutely. You want me, I want you. Yes. It's important also to see how this phrase, in him, works through this passage. Grace comes to people through Jesus Christ. That's, that's a contingency. It's in Christ that is always yes. God's promises find their yes in him, he says. And it's through him that we utter amen. So, as Christians who are in Christ, if we live with reference to Jesus, we love what he loves, we hate what he hates, if we let our hearts be shaped by his heart, our desires, by what he desires, then we can have that easy confidence. That's where it comes from. We can have that great confidence that we'll receive the things that we ask in prayer. If I'm lining myself and my desire is to line myself up with what you love, I know that what I ask, you will give. You will give what I need. Because his answer to us is, you're asking me, when we pray, when we pray, we are asking for God's judgment on what we're asking. Otherwise, we're insisting. You see the difference? A true prayer is saying, this is what I want. Judge this desire. If it's good and right, give it. If it's not right, don't give it. That's actually acknowledging Jesus as Lord. If that's what we bring, if that's how we pray, he will say, absolutely, yes, I answer that. I will respond accordingly. And we can we can then have this, that easy confidence and we can live without fear of others because it's then that we can be anxious about nothing. God will give me what is good. We can have unwavering assurance because we rest in our identity in Christ. That's the heart of this. In Him. We can rest in Him. This is also called walking in the light. That's how John talks about this. And it's supposed to affect our relationships. The first epistle to John is a parallel epistle to this one in many of the teachings. So if you, if you want to read something like along, as we're going through 2 Corinthians, and you want to read along with it, 1 John is a very good place to, to work with this one. Because God has that kind of unshakable love for his people, his people 
can have that kind of unshakable love towards each other. He says in verse 21, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ. It's God who's anointed us, who's also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. He says, being in Christ together, we're made firm together. We're established together. This is that where we started. This is the common ground. Being in Christ together, it's God's spirit that acts as the guarantee of our belonging in his kingdom. It's his spirit that acts as the guarantee, not our behavior. It's not also the regard or good opinion of these lovely people sitting around us. That's not what guarantees our place in his kingdom. So, in conclusion... You can't just think your way to having this testimony of a clear conscience. You can't, you can't will your way to it. You can't think your way so that you relate with simplicity and godly sincerity. I've tried many times. You've probably tried. You can't will your way to acting by the grace of God. That's, in fact, a contradiction in terms. Grace means gift. You can't will your way to it. It's a gift. And we know our minds and our wills are relentlessly self-interested, desperately self-interested. So even as we're trying to think our way and will our way to godly simplicity and sincerity, uh, self-interest is coming in. We're thinking about, how am I doing? How, we're, we're, we're self-focused. How am I doing? How, how sincere am I? Is this really, am I being really straightforward here? That sounds like bad news. The will and the mind follow something deeper. The will and the mind follow something deeper. You know this, our, our choices, our, our rationale, follow our hearts. Our choices and our rationale follow what we want. So the thing that you want most deeply is what you'll always be working to get. Let that be God himself. Let that be God himself. His spirit is in you, drawing you there. His spirit is offering this. In the innermost place of your soul, in the innermost place of your being, God is working, inviting you to that. The fountain is there. That's the desire to listen to. So it's by seeking God's face, heeding that, Seeking his face, looking to know the Lord, feeding your soul on the word of God. That's how our hearts heed the spirit and become set upon God. And then he does the work of transformation. He does the work of transformation. 
There's no shortcuts to this. It's a lifetime. Young people, I, I encourage you to talk to some old people about what it's been like to walk a lifetime with the Lord. Ask them. I don't know why I say young people. I mean people in your 40s and 50s. Ask older people what it has been like to, to try to fix themselves, to try to, by the, the power of their own will, transform themselves. And you, you'll hear consistently, you can't. This is a lifetime of God's Spirit working in you, drawing you after Him, shaping your desires. There's no shortcuts. Verse 21, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. It is God. Who's the actor here? It is God who has put his seal on us. It is God who has given us his spirit. And it's in Christ the Lord that he gives us good desires and that he's delighted to grant them. The Lord God always smiles upon and always affirms the Son. The Father always affirms the Son. In Him, we always have that. In Jesus, we always receive that smile, that favor. And when we have that favor and we know we have it, then we're free. That's when we feel free. And we don't need to be impressive. We don't need to be convincing. We're free. And it doesn't mean we won't have conflict. Paul had conflict. But we can have conflict with freedom. That who we are is not at stake. Just That's such a wonderful thing. To be able to have conflict. With your identity not at stake. Knowing that you have the love and approval of the one most worthy. You've got it. No matter how this works out, you have his approval. If God is for us, who can be against us? Yes. Amen. Father, we thank you that you, even now, even this moment, you look on us in the mess that we are. In whatever place we are in this journey with you, you look on each one of us that is in you and we thank you that you approve, that you say, my son, my daughter. Lord, would you grant us that great assurance so that we can walk in the newness of life that you give. We can walk with freedom of conscience. We can heed you, follow close to you, in Jesus' name.